Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 4. Caesar's Wife A private detective agency is not like a barber shop. Walk-ins are very rare. I get most of my business from lawyers and other self-important types who expect me to make house calls, so I hardly ever meet clients at my own office. And when I do, they almost always have an appointment. In the time it took Gretchen to bring my walk-in from the reception area, I dried my hands on the back of my pants and hurried to clear the rest of the coffee cups from the desktop. If I thought it would help, I would have put a spit curl in my forelock. Gretchen introduced her as Ellen Stockwell, and as improbable as it seems, the name didn't ring any bells for me at the time. She was lithe and thin and moved with an economic grace, like a gymnast or a ballet dancer. She had a handsome open face with prominent cheekbones, and when she smiled, I noticed a slight gap between her front teeth. The flaw endeared me to her immediately, either because I felt a kinship for my own dental challenges, or because I read her decision not to have it fixed as a sign of confidence and comfort with herself. She wore simple clothes, navy blue slacks and a crisp white blouse with French cuffs, but she wore them with style. I put her in her mid-forties. We don't get much walk-in traffic, I felt obligated to say after I settled her into one of the client chairs. We looked at each other across the desk. She seemed to be waiting for me to say something, but I didn't know what. You do know who I am, don't you? She asked. A lady in distress? Yes, certainly that, but I thought you would recognize my name. You work with my husband, Lieutenant Stockwell. That was the problem. Stockwell without the lieutenant was not sufficiently memorable but taken together, they were unforgettable, like a devastating illness or a high school humiliation. He was the hard-nosed East Palo Alto police officer assigned to investigate the murder of Roland Teller, and I was a San Francisco P.I. who was dumb enough to get hit from behind and wake up on the floor next to the body. It was not the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I felt my lips forming an insincere smile. Of course, uh, the lieutenant. How is he? Not very well, actually. We've both been under a lot of strain. Yes, a lot of strain. She sighed and seemed to go away for a moment. When she came back, her voice was harder, more determined. So much so that he's moved out of the house. That's why I'm here. Our... I bent forward in my chair with a loud squeak and nearly pawed my way across the desk. I didn't like the direction this was headed. Excuse me, Mrs. Stockwell. You may not know this, but California is a no-fault state. There's no need to hire a private detective to prove that the other party committed some uh, unsavory act. Unsavory act? You know, like physical abuse or adultery or... My voice trailed off under the weight of her stare. You misunderstand me, Mr. Reardon. She reached for her purse and brought it into her lap. From it, she took a 4 by 6 color photograph and placed it on the desk blotter. This is our daughter, Carolyn. She's been missing for three weeks.
The photo was a waist-high shot of an attractive teenage girl in a black synthetic top with feathers at the wrist and collar. The material of her top gave out around her solar plexus, and I could see that she had a stud in her belly button. There appeared to be another above her left nostril. She held her arms akimbo in a haughty, exasperated stance that seemed to signal an impatience with the picture-taking process. She had her mother's dark eyes and prominent cheekbones, but I didn't see anything in the picture that came from her father, unless the lieutenant's hair had once been purple. She seems very nice, I said, trying to put some mileage between me and my earlier remark. She's nice enough when she wants to be, although I'm not sure how one could tell from a photograph. The rebuke, though gentle, was enough to restore my God-given gift of gruffness. Look, Mrs. Stockwell, I jumped the gun with the divorce business, but I still don't see what you're doing here. In the first place, your husband is a cop. Even if you don't live in East Palo Alto, the police wherever you do live are bound to go the extra mile for a brother officer. Second, if your husband ever thinks of me, and there's no reason why he should, I'm certain he doesn't think of me as the person he would hire to find his daughter. He may not have mentioned it to you, but we did not exactly see eye to eye on the Teller investigation. He told me you were a horse's ass. I held my hands out, palms up. I rest my case. Ellen smiled, the little gap between her teeth making her look for a moment like a mischievous child. Don't be offended. My husband thinks everyone is a horse's ass. But he also said that you had a special knack for stirring the pot and making things happen. That's exactly what we need. But he doesn't know you're here, does he? Quentin doesn't know much of anything these days. He's been drinking. He's living in a residence hotel. And he's been placed on administrative leave. I'm on my own now, and I have to do what I think is best to find my daughter. Hearing Stockwell called Quentin made me slow, and rather lame, in my response. I'm sorry. He's taken this hard, then. Ellen ran her hands along slender thighs and then clutched at her knees. It's more than Carolyn's disappearance. Our oldest died last year of a drug overdose. Quentin feels like he didn't give either child enough of his time when they were younger, and he can't bear the thought of losing another. She let go of her knees and slumped back into her chair. Neither can I. As bad as I might feel about the situation, I did not want to be involved with Lieutenant Stockwell and his family. I tried to sneak around it. What I said earlier about the police helping a brother officer, they must be doing everything they can. We live in the East Bay, in Union City. Quentin has always had a chip on his shoulder about working on the force of a poor town like East Palo Alto. I'm afraid he made some rather unfortunate remarks to the investigating officer regarding her competence and her personal habits. The investigating officer is a, is a woman? Ellen gave a sort of grim, half-smile. Yes, I know what you're thinking. It didn't help that the officer was female. My husband doesn't hold the most progressive views about women on the force. He told me his idea of the pecking order once. White males, followed by black males, followed by males of any other minority. Then come white females, and at the bottom, black females. Except for gay males, they're at the very bottom. The Union City officer is a black female. At least she isn't gay. Gay or straight, he still called her a dyke. Ouch. There's much more to Quentin than these terrible biases and prejudices, but especially when he's under pressure, they seep from him like poison. The other problem is Carolyn's age. She turned 18 last month. Since she's no longer a minor and there's no evidence of a crime, the police won't place a priority on the search. She pulled her chair closer to the desk and grasped the edge of it. You see the situation I'm in. My husband is very depressed, almost completely incapacitated. He can't do anything to find her. 
The Union City Police were helping very little before Quentin talked to them, and now that he has, they won't even return phone calls. I really don't have anywhere else to turn. You are my last best hope. So much for sneaking around it. I felt I'd stepped right into it. I played my final card. I really can't take the case unless your husband agrees to it. He's bound to catch wind of my involvement, and I can't do an effective job without his cooperation, to say nothing of the difficulties I'll have if he tries to hinder me. Quentin is in no shape to hinder anyone, but my impression is he has a grudging respect for you. Given the circumstances, I don't think it will be hard to get his agreement. Won't you please take the case? I swept the blotter clear of the few glazing chips I'd missed earlier. Ellen watched me intently, her whole body erect and rigid in anticipation. It was like being watched by a hungry dog waiting for table scraps. Okay, I said slowly, if the lieutenant agrees. She released the edge of the desk and folded her hands demurely in her lap. Thank you. I know it's uncomfortable for you, but it means everything to me. Shall I give you a retainer? What is the appropriate amount? I drew in a deep breath and blew it out through my nose. I charge 55 an hour for general investigations, and I usually ask for a third of the anticipated charges up front. I guess two grand would be plenty. I would also need a signed client retainer form. Ellen had snapped open her bag and was fishing around inside it. She found her checkbook and held it out for me to see, then caught the nuance in what I had said. Why are you putting it that way? You don't sound as if you're really committed. I think under the circumstances you and your husband should both sign the retainer form, Mrs. Stockwell. The money, too, should probably come from both of you. Can we set a time for all of us to meet and discuss it? She frowned. I suppose you could come to our house this evening. I could arrange for Quentin to be there. All right. She nodded slightly, and when I didn't say anything further urged, hadn't you better get some preliminary information? Suppressing a groan, I extracted a warped yellow legal pad and a stubby number two pencil from my desk. I tore the top sheet off the pad, which had a juvenile drawing of a naked woman astride a string base, and signaled I was ready to take notes. Okay, I said. Let's start with the basics. I copied down her address and various telephone numbers, got the name of the investigating officer in Union City, and then asked, Does Carolyn live at home? Yes, she's going to art school. Which one? The San Francisco Lyceum of Art. San Francisco and art, I can spell. What was that other word? I tried to pronounce Lyceum, but it came out like lie swim. Ellen laughed in a pleasant way. I guess you never got hooked on phonics, Mr. Reardon. That's one addiction I avoided, thank God. And you can call me August. Please call me Ellen. She spelled Lyceum for me, then added, It's a very good school. They might even be able to help with your drawing. She nodded at the sheet of paper I had torn from the pad. Thanks, I said, but that's just the way I want it. I glommed the paper from the desk and slid it into the top drawer. I guess I better ask when you last saw Carolyn. Ellen looked down at her lap and absently snapped and unsnapped the catch to her purse. The last time we saw her was three weeks ago Wednesday. I dropped her at the BART station so she could catch the train into the city. Did anyone see her in class that day? No, she doesn't have class on Wednesday. She was going to her job in Noe Valley. She works at Starbucks. Noe Valley is a yuppie neighborhood in the southern third of town, but I didn't think there were any art colleges nearby. Did they see her at Starbucks then? Yes, she worked her full shift and left around 5.30. She didn't say whether she was going home or had other plans. Why Noe Valley? Isn't the art school downtown somewhere? It is, but her best friend lives in the Mission District, and she wanted to work close to her. 
They are both going to the Lyceum, and they sometimes do their projects together at her apartment. I take it the friend didn't see her after work. Ellen shook her head slowly, causing the tips of her short chestnut hair to sway together at a point beneath her chin. She looked up at me with an intent expression, and just in that moment, I flashed on Jacqueline Kennedy. There was something elegant and completely feminine about her that conjured up the image I had of Jackie. No, she said. Monica said she hadn't seen Carolyn for several days. She didn't? Well, she said she hadn't seen her. You don't sound very certain. Do you think Monica is lying? I'm not sure. It's not so much that I think she's lying as I was bothered by her attitude. She didn't seem the least little bit concerned that Carolyn was missing. Do you mean she didn't care, or she didn't think there was any reason to be concerned for Carolyn's safety? The latter, I guess. Monica is different from Carolyn, much more of a free spirit. Perhaps what I took for unconcern is just a reflection of her laissez-faire approach to life. She gave one of her gap-tube smiles. Or perhaps I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. As someone who doesn't know Lyceums from Lysol, I may not either, but my sense is further conversation with Monica is definitely warranted. In fact, I'd appreciate it if you would make a list of all of Carolyn's friends, including all boyfriends, past or present. I'll get it from you tonight. I already put together one for the police, but I'll review it to make sure I didn't miss anyone. That'll be a big help. Ellen waited for me to ask more questions. When I didn't, she snapped her bag shut with a sudden finality and came to her feet in a smooth motion. I shouldn't take up any more of your time. Can you drop by around five? I'm sure I can have Quentin over by then. I stood up and meandered around the end of the desk. Five would be fine. She put her hand out and I took it. It was small and pliant, and it felt pleasantly cool. Thank you again, she said. I can't tell you how much this means to me. I just hope it means half as much to your husband. Don't worry, he'll see the light. I walked her to the door and pulled it open, but she stopped to look at the black and white photograph besides the doorframe. Who is that? she asked. That's Paul Chambers, a famous jazz bassist. He's one of my heroes. She studied my face as if making up her mind and reached across to touch my arm. I hope you'll be one of my heroes, August. Her touch, and the way she looked at me, made me hope it too, for at least as long as she stood there. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.